This is an ADST Moments Part 2 regarding the events surrounding the Blue House raid and subsequent seizure of the USS Pueblo in 1968. In this part, Richard Erickson, the political counselor in South Korea at the time, continues his narration of the events and ongoing negotiations surrounding the USS Pueblo seizure. How to get the crew back from the Pueblo became our main concern and how to placate the South mm -hmm. Koreans for uh, the anger that they already felt. And of course, in getting the crew back, we made them even we made the South Koreans even angrier. We decided after the embassy wasn't really consulted very much in this, as I recall. Mm -hmm. But the powers that be back in Washington decided that um, it should be done at Panmunjom. We just discarded various other possible places. Mm -hmm that uh, the North Koreans had indicated a willingness to talk about it, but the question was, where are you going to do that? And our decision eventually was to use the Military Armistice Commission uh, commander uh, on our side uh, and, and his whole apparatus and do it at Panmunjom. Now, Panmunjom, of course, has been called a village. It is not a village, as anybody It never was a village. It was just an inn mm. at one point on a crossroads in the road. But it is now just a, and it was then, just a full-fledged armistice mm. meeting, meeting place. Uh, and it was neutral, regarded to be regarded as neutral territory. Well, of course, that was, and, and therefore, and, you know, it's close to the scene, good communications for the North Koreans, obviously, uh, good communications for us. It had a lot to recommend it. The only point was, the only problem was the South Koreans regarded it as their territory. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the idea that, uh, the idea was, of course, that we would talk directly, uh, that our military armistice com commission uh, member, uh, leader of our delegation, would talk directly to the North Koreans, and no one else would be present on our side. We wouldn't take any of the UN command members, and most specifically, we wouldn't take any South Koreans. And the North Koreans, of course, had the Chinese with them for every meeting from the very beginning. But when word of this kind of thing reached the South Koreans, they, they, they grew very, very unhappy indeed. And they, when their initial protests were delivered to Bill Porter, then, the, then our ambassador, Porter gave them sort of short shrift uh, and just enraged them mm -hmm. uh, to the point where they would not uh, talk to him. They said they would refuse to discuss this matter with Ambassador Porter. Anyway, we were going to go ahead and do it. Meanwhile, was this being pretty well called from Washington? Oh, yes, entirely. I mean, Hell, it was being called from called by Lyndon Johnson. Yeah. Uh, he was on the telephone a number of times when in the period of the mm -hmm. uh, uh, Enterprise when the Enterprise was up. He was the head of the, uh, they set up a crisis team, uh, you know, a, a, and uh, there were a lot of, I forget who exactly was on. I remember Ed Doherty, who had been DCM and so was one of the members of it, and Jim Leonard, who uh, eventually came up with the solution to the whole mess, was, was on it. But it was, yeah, it was entirely dictated from Washington. What, what happened was that the South Koreans wouldn't, were, were absolutely furious, and of course we had this other problem of, of uh, how to uh, compensate the South Koreans for their injury in the Blue House raid and all the rest, and their feeling of insecurity. Yeah. Uh, they, 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 they realized, began to realize that the DMZ was porous and, mm -hmm. and they wanted more uh, uh, equipment yeah. and aid. 
So we had a number of problems sort of juggling in the air, but the, uh, once the venue for the Panmunjom talks was decided, we were in very poor position with the South Koreans. Park, I think, had by this time returned to Seoul and was, was operating. But it was decided that, that um, I would be the contact. I mean, I would be the operating officer in Seoul on the Pueblo negotiations. Uh, in the sense that that um, the embassy would handle all of the reporting. It was not to be done by, I don't know what the military did, but I do know that the official arrangement was that Admiral Smith, who was the, uh, the uh, military armistice commission member for us, uh, and it would take his troops up there, his, his um, little negotiating team up there, with all military personnel, uh, except for one Korean-American civilian. And they would uh, conduct the negotiating session, and they would come back into the embassy, not to the military command head, or they'd come back into the embassy. And I and some of the political officers would debrief them. Mm -hmm. We would write the reporting cable, the immediate reporting cable of what had happened. Um, and then we would send them, we would uh, uh, also uh, transcribe and send the verbatim text of uh, the meeting, which was taped. We'd take it off the tape and we'd send that telegram up. Then we would send an interpretive. We'd send a debrief, the mm -hmm. tape, uh, the transcript, ADA. Then we would concoct a, an interpretation with talking with Admiral Smith, what had happened, mm -hmm. what the significant points were, with whatever recommendations mm -hmm. the embassy might have for what was going on. Uh, I'm not never sure that those recommendations were ever followed. But then, after that had been done, it was my job to inform the South Koreans what had transpired, because as part of keeping them in place, we had agreed that we would keep them informed step by step. And I would have to do this by going up to the uh, foreign office. It's usually about 10 or 11 o'clock at night by this time. And I would go into that cold, cold, enormous stone building mm -hmm. that housed the government, of most of the government. Of the old capital. The old, the old Japanese capital, capital. yeah. Mm -hmm. And everything was, it was February and January mm -hmm. and March, and it was colder than oh, hell. <laughs> Everything was turned off and the elevators weren't working. You'd go into that ghostly building and you'd hear scurrying in the corridors. And I'd walk up the, I had the elevator, I'd have to walk up the four floors yeah. to the office of Pak Gun, who was the director of the North American Affairs Bureau in the Foreign Ministry at that time, and my good golfing buddy. But it was the idea that he and I would communicate because only he and I had a friendship strong enough to withstand the strains yeah. that would, created, would be created by this terrible, terrible mm. thing that we were doing. And uh, the scurrying, of course, was newspaper men who were hiding mm. in around the building and would get a debrief mm -hmm. from Pac after I talked to him. So I'd go up and I'd talk to Pac, and I'd sit down, and he would read me the riot act. I mean, every time I got told exactly what you know, how we were uh, ignoring the sensitivities of the Korean people and doing this terrible thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I, I used to tell him, I said, Pop, why don't, you, why don't you just put it on tape and I'll take it home for me and then I, home with me and then I can get, <laughs> I, I can get to the business with yeah. you and we can get out of here and go to bed. But I think he was under orders yeah. every time to, to, uh, so that I would report duly that the South Koreans were still outraged. Anyway, I would tell him and, you know, uh, more or less what had happened. Actually, there was never anything 
I left in July, and from January to July with the Pueblo negotiations, there wasn't all that much to tell the South Koreans, because there wasn't all that much that was mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't until, as you recall, until what, just Christmas Eve almost that the, that the Pueblo crew was mm -hmm. released. But uh, <clears throat> during the first part of my, when we were meeting every week almost, some interesting things emerged, and that was one of them was that People should study that negotiation, I think, and whenever you negotiate with the North Koreans, because I think it, it, it shows some things about how their system functions and why it's difficult, why they are so difficult to negotiate with. One of the, th one of the things that cropped up was that we would go up with a proposal of some sort uh, on the release of the crew, and they would be sitting there with a with a uh, card catalog. I never went on these mm -hmm. missions, incidentally. Uh, just the military command went. But I, they were described okay. to me, of course. They'd be sitting there with a card catalog, and if the answer to the particular thing, the proposal we had made or the question we had asked, wasn't there, they would say something that was totally non-pertinent, and then go off, and they would come back with an answer at the next meeting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was directly to the question, but their yeah. immediate answers were never, and that went all, that, that pattern continued all through the negotiations. They, mm -hmm. The man who was negotiating for them was obviously never empowered mm -hmm. to do anything on his uh, basis of his own judgment or general instructions. Mm -hmm. He always had to take it back, and presumably they went over it up in, North, up in Pyongyang and, and uh, hashed it around and then, and then decided on it. But sometimes you get totally nonsensical mm -hmm. responses if they didn't have something yeah. in the card file that corresponded to the question or the, the, the proposal you were making. Um, George Newman, who was the DCM there, and I, um, speaking of how the thing finally came out, were quite proud of a telegram we wrote sometime in February, early, fairly early February, uh, when we were finally decided that we'd, we would, would, would do it at Penwin John. We called it the Slippery Slope Telegram, and it's somewhere deep in the department's mm -hmm. archives. But what it said, in effect, was, if you're going to do it at Panmunjom, this is what eventually is going to happen. We based it on our analysis of what had happened in previous incidents, not like the Pueblo, mm -hmm. but the, the two or three incidents we had had of people who strayed across the border, got shot down, killed, or in some places mm -hmm. captured. We'd had some incidents of this kind. Mm -hmm. And what we said was, you are going to be asked to sign a document that the North Koreans will have drafted, and they will brook no editing of it. And it will set forth their point of view. And if you do that, and if you allow them the length of time that they are going to require to squeeze every goddamn thing they can get out of this situation in terms of communist propaganda to, for the rest, because they had a, always had a big press contingent. Then at the end of a suitable period, which they will determine, they will return the crew. They will not return the ship. Mm -hmm. But this is the way it's going to be, because this is the way it has always been. Uh, you know, and they have much more patience. We didn't say this, but I said this is, this is the way it's all. This has been the pattern of all the past. And that is pretty much what happened. We went back and forth and back and forth. We very early abandoned any idea of getting the crew back, we fi I mean the ship back. We figured it had been dismantled and I mean any, anything of intelligence yeah. value had been taken off it. And um, that, they, that they were eventually going to tire 
of having the crew, and they were going to, because the crew really wasn't going to be terrible, a lot of use to them, and they were going to be leery of having it turn against them if, if the crew members started getting too sick. Uh, and. Uh, uh, their care appeared to be inadequate, as eventually it would. And of course, there were all these incidents of the crew being interviewed on public and sending messages by, you know, bullshit signs yeah, yeah. and that kind of thing. Um, the crew belt, the crew held up really pretty well, I think, except for perhaps one or two members. Um, but um, on our side, uh, our chief negotiator proved to be something of a problem, Admiral Smith. Um, he was a rear admiral, and he was a Navy man, and it galled him beyond description to think that a naval vessel had been taken <laughs> by a third-rate, <laughs> by a damn gunboat, for yeah. God's sake, uh, on the high seas, and, you know, the, a lot of talk in the Navy at the time that the ship should have been scuttled, uh, that mm -hmm. Booker, the captain, uh, should have gone down with his yeah. ship. He was replaced by an Army general named Woodward. Uh, who had been in the Berlin situation with the communists. Mm -hmm. Smith had absolutely no dealings, political uh -huh. dealings, uh, in his life, I don't think. But Woodward came from mm -hmm. this background in Berlin, and his first words mm -hmm. to us when he, when he came over to the embassy to talk to us were, well, what are you bastards going to have me do? Let's get it over with. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, he was eventually the negotiator who, mm -hmm. who achieved the final result. Yeah. But he was the institutional mm -hmm. memory, and he did. He provided the mm -hmm. most uh, cogent comments, and he deserves an enormous mm -hmm. amount of credit for whatever successes we finally achieved. Mm -hmm. As you know, the Pueblo thing was finally settled when uh, there had been a case earlier, uh, and I don't think that the people in Washington were terribly aware of it, although we had reported it as part of our, our analysis of what was going on and what might happen. Mm -hmm. When a feisty little uh, Armistice Commission commander on our side by the name of Chickarella, Arm, uh, Army Major General, had been negotiating the return of the body of a helicopter pilot. And it had gone on for weeks, and the North Koreans had gotten their thing, and they were stonewalled everything. And, and finally, uh, and they had insisted on this piece of paper being signed, just the way it was. So Chickarella finally got authority to sign that piece of paper. What he didn't get authority to do was what he did spontaneously, and that was to give it to them and say, in effect, here, you sons of bitches, here's your goddamn sheet of paper. It isn't worth the paper it's written on. The only reason I'm giving it to you is so we can get the body of this guy back. Yeah. He said, you're not worthy to wear, Chickarella went on, it's quite a, quite a scene. He went on to say, you're not worthy to wear the uniform of a soldier, and I spit, in fact, I spit on you. So yeah. South Korea, I mean, the North Koreans took it with equanimity, uh -huh. looked at the paper, met their requirements, gave us back the body. And that, in, on a larger scale, is essentially what happened with mm -hmm. the Pueblo. Uh, but what the story goes, I wasn't, as I say, I was, I was in Japan at the time. I had been transferred to Tokyo by the time the crew came out. But I'm given to understand that Jim Leonard's wife, he was shaving one day, and he was bemoaning the fact that they hadn't reached a solution and things were just pottling mm -hmm. along. And she said, well, have you tried giving them the piece of paper they want? And the piece of paper they want, of course, they wanted, of course, it was spelled out from the very beginning, was to acknowledge that the Pueblo was a spy ship, 
Uh, <laughs> what else was it? it? Certainly wasn't a cargo ship, but a knowledge that it was a spy ship, acknowledge that, that it was uh, uh, trying to obtain the secrets of the People's mm -hmm. Republic of you know, North Korea, acknowledge that it had penetrated, even though we had proven at the negotiations that it had not penetrated. Mm -hmm. uh, their coastal waters within three miles. Uh, they kept saying that they never specified miles, really. Mm -hmm. But uh, acknowledge that it had penetrated their coastal waters without uh, authority and with the intention of spying and so on, and apologize for the gross insults of the North Korean people. Well, there may have been other parts on uh, things, but that, those, that was the essence of it. But Jim Letters writes says, well, have you ever thought of giving them their damn piece of paper, and, and I'm sure she didn't swear, but mm -hmm. giving them their piece of paper and uh, then denouncing it orally. Mm -hmm. And Jim took it down to the department and said, would you let's try this. Uh, it should have been suggested long ago because there was a history for it. But yeah. anyway, they, they decided, uh, they gave uh, Washington approved it, and Woodward was instructed to say, I will mm -hmm. give you exactly what you want but I'm going to denounce it publicly as I do so. I said, okay. <laughs> and that's what happened. Yeah. He gave them the piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And he said, in effect, it's a worthless piece of paper. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean a thing. Mm -hmm. It's not a uh, reflection of the, what, what actually happened. Uh, but we give it to you simply to effect the release of the crew. The crew came back. This podcast has been brought to you by ADST. For more, check out our website at ADST.org. ADST, American Diplomacy, Words and All.